We are in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Let's look at this together. Acts 17. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from, from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They, they are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city of officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Let's pray as we look at God's word together. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that the beginning, the birth of this important church in the town of Thessalonica has implications for us today. Thank you that we get to study your word and to to have in front of us the very truth of God. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who do not have the freedom that we enjoy today, that, that your Holy Spirit would break through the walls and, and through the obstacles of them being in your presence, and God, that you would meet them where they are today. Father, we specifically pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. We know there are many believers there who gathered a few hours ago to worship you in spite of dire circumstances. God, we ask that you sustain them. And God, we ask that in light of their boldness, we would be emboldened to live by faith. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. I want to do something a little bit different today, and, I, and I'm kind of going... I don't want to say I'm going out on a limb because it's nothing too radical. But for me, uh, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. Uh, and, I, and I'm going to actually bring up some things on, on the screen behind me in a minute. And I want to take a look at why, why it was important for a church to be established in this town, this city called Thessalonica. And I want to do that by actually doing a little bit of geography together. Okay, And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at a map together real quick. Let me bring this up on the screen so that you can see what I'm talking about. All right, you, sh you will see. I know that the lighting in here is not perfect for this, and the further back you are, the more difficult it might be to see this. But I, I, I tried to do this in a way that the most important things that I'm going to say today, everybody should be able to um, see pretty well. So you should recognize where we're at right now. This is the, the 15068 zip code, Lower Borough, Arnold, New Kensington, you see on the map there. Uh, that's where we are. Hopefully you already knew that, but that's where we are. The, the book of Thessalonians 
which was written 2,000 years ago, takes place in a very different land. You probably knew that as well. To get there, we're going to travel. I wish it was this easy on a plane. We're going to travel across the ocean. And I want to show you, you see Europe and Africa and the Middle East come together here. I want to I talk about the first century Roman Empire. This territory hopefully is somewhat familiar to you. I know some, some, some folks are more geographically inclined than others, uh, but uh, hopefully you've seen this before. Otherwise, our public school systems have totally failed you. <laughs> but what you're looking at is, if, you, if we kind of look at the Mediterranean Sea, that large body of water in the middle here, this is, by and large, the area of the Roman Empire. Let me do a quick screenshot. And then I want to show you where the Roman Empire existed. All right. Again, if this doesn't look super sharp from where you're at, I, I think the most significant parts will start to show up. Okay, so the Roman Empire... Basically, and you, you'll see up here, um, this is the UK. You're going to love my handwriting. Okay, that's the UK up there. And um, we have the Black Sea over here. We have the Mediterranean Sea here. Everybody probably recognizes this little piece of land right here. That's the boot of Italy, right? And so the Roman Empire basically surrounds the Mediterranean Sea down here kind of just sort of occupies this coastal region and goes up here to the Black Sea across this southern part of Europe and up here, we kind of lose the UK there, but that's the UK, that series of islands there. Those are, those are the official boundaries right there of the Roman Empire in the first century, right? Okay, so that's sort of the, the Roman Empire. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because the gospel comes into a specific geographic time or geographic place in a specific time in human history. And the gospel comes into the Roman Empire through the people of Israel, which I'll show you that in just a moment. And it spreads by God's sovereignty very rapidly through the Roman Empire. God designed that the gospel message come into human history at a time in which it could spread very quickly. Prior to the Roman Empire, uh, these were very much, they were much more divided lands with less sophisticated ways of information traveling. But there were some significant developments that happened during the Roman Empire that allowed the gospel to flow. So let's Whoop, whoop, whoop. Let's look at Israel. Israel is right here. That's the land of Israel. Okay? So in the context of the Roman Empire, that little blip that I've colored yellow is the land of Israel. In Israel is the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified where the temple was built, where all of these significant things starting from the Old Testament and into the New Testament take place. Now, the gospel comes 
into, into the, the land of Israel. I'm going to try to uh, just change. There's very few colors. This is what I learned on Friday when I was playing with this. There's very few colors that show up well on this screen. So I'm going to try to utilize the ones that show up best. This signifies the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. The, the essential parts of the message of the gospel of Jesus. Okay, so, so God sends Jesus into this place at this time, the first century, and the gospel begins to spread within, starting within the city of Jerusalem. But what did Jesus tell his disciples needed to happen concerning this gospel message? Does anybody remember? What did the gospel need to do? needed to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the gospel is, is here in, in Jerusalem, but that is not the end of God's plan for the gospel, is it? His plan is for the gospel to go from this place here into the known world. He wants the gospel message to spread to the ends of the earth. And so there's, there's a lot of things that need to take place in order for that to happen. And the beginning of that is those early disciples, those early followers of Christ. They begin to leave the comfort of where they live. And they begin to go, first of all, throughout the Roman Empire and eventually they would go beyond there. So, where does Thessalonica fit into all of this? Thessalonica Let's focus right here. Thessalonica is in a place at that time which is called Macedonia. Macedonia is basically this this part of the map that we're looking at. Macedonia is a province, uh, in other words, a state of the Roman Empire. What's going on, uh, what's significant about Macedonia is that the Roman Empire, which as you can imagine, is centered in Rome. The Roman Empire has developed a series of significant roads. And by significant roads, don't think like Interstate 80, think like cobblestone roads. For the time, that was, that was the best mode of transportation across land, was some sort of cobblestone road. Obviously, and one of the reasons why the Roman Empire took the, the, the geography that it did was because travel was much more simpler on, well, I shouldn't say simpler. It could be more efficient on water than it was across land. And this piece of land kind of sits at the center, I can't zoom out anymore because I'm on this picture, kind of sits at the center of several continents, right? And so this is, this is basically the, the, the piece of geography through which everything goes at that time. And so when we go, when we look at Macedonia, there's a road, I wish it would leave white as an option for me here, sorry. <laughs> there's a road that goes from over here in Istanbul and goes along the, sort of along the Aegean Sea here and goes across through Macedonia over here to the Adriatic Sea called the Via Ignatia. 
The Via Ignatia uh, is a very significant transportation route right through the middle of the Roman Empire. You could go from, well, Istanbul was Byzantium at the time and eventually became Constantinople. But then, you know, there's that really helpful song that tells us it's not Constantinople anymore. It's Istanbul, it's not Constantinople. Okay, whatever. So that was, by the way, that's been, I've sung that in my head a million times this week because, because of this right here. The Via Ignatia is, is a, a road that goes across this, this fairly significant piece of land, takes you over, over here to the Adriatic Sea, and then you could, by boat, get into well, what's now Italy, but the heart of the Roman Empire. And there was another road somewhere through here called the Via Appia that would go up to Rome. So that is, if this is Pennsylvania, that's Route 76, okay? That's like the, the, main, uh, the, the main road that goes through there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, so where's Thessalonica? I told you this is Macedonia. Thessalonica, let me clean this up for you. Thessalonica sits on that Via Appia, or the Via Ignatia, right here, oops, as a port town, okay? Everybody see that? That's Thessalonica. Okay, so who cares? Those people cared, and you should care, because the... We're, we're back on the map. By the way, let me show you, um, let, let me finish that sentence. Um, you should care because as it goes through this part of the world right here, it begins to spread the gospel I'm talking about. begins to spread throughout the Roman Empire and eventually would be carried across this large body of water to this place that we now call America and eventually would make its way to Lower Borough, right? That's how, the, that's how the gospel spread. But let me go back. Let me see if it's on my picture. Today, there's another significant thing going on. If you've been looking at the news or any, anything at all, uh, you might have heard a lot of talk about this part of land right here, right? You see what that is? That's Ukraine. So why does it matter that the gospel left Jerusalem? It matters for us, and it matters for people like the Ukrainians today because this gospel that Jesus establishes down here in Jerusalem would eventually make its way into this part of the world, would eventually make its way all the way over to where we're at in the world, and it's because that gospel spread that we have hope in Jesus Christ. And it's because that gospel spread that Ukrainians who are in danger of losing their lives can have hope in Jesus Christ. So that's the significance of all of this. The significance was that the gospel was never meant to stay in one place. But as we saw, let me go ahead and get this off the screen for you. As we saw, as we looked at Acts chapter 17, when the gospel went to Thessalonica, 
Did the people come out and celebrate like, oh, thank God, the gospel is here. We've been longing for hope. We've been, we've been waiting, waiting for news of a risen Savior. No. The gospel was hated in Thessalonica. The gospel was hated there. And they, they, actually, they actually chased Paul and his associates out of town threatened to arrest them, threatened, threatened to, to put them in jail, even, even threatened the people that were hosting them. But let's talk, about, let's talk about how the gospel moves through the Roman Empire and how the gospel moves today. I just want to make really two points, and then I'm going to ask a question at the end. The first point is this. The church grew through the proclamation of the gospel. You see that on the handout? The church grew through the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus said before his ascension, he went to his disciples. If we look at Matthew chapter 28, he went to his disciples and it tells us in verse 18, Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in, in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He tells them to go. He tells them to take this gospel, which by, by the authority of heaven has been given to him to give to them and to take that gospel and to preach it to all nations, making disciples, baptizing, teaching them to obey and reminding each other that he is with them always. So that commission is what drives the disciples into Thessalonica. Jesus says in Acts 1.8, we, we referenced this earlier. In Acts 1.8, he says, this is right before his ascension, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where they are, in all of Judea and Samaria, which is basically that, that part that I colored yellow on the map, and to the ends of the earth. We would be, to, in, in relationship to where they're at, we would be considered the ends of the earth. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would empower them to be his witnesses to places like here and places like Thessalonica. But here's how, here's how the church grows. Let's look at back at Acts 17, verses 1 through 4 says. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue. This is what he did. This was his practice. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue on three Sabbath days, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of the leading women. So this is what Paul would do. As he went throughout that, that little part of the Roman Empire around the Mediterranean Sea, which is primarily where Paul ministered, 
sometimes by land, sometimes by boat. He traveled, and he would travel along some of those roads, and he would go into the cities, and he would go to the synagogues, and he would open the scriptures to them, and he would show them in the Old Testament how Jesus of Nazareth had fulfilled the promises of a coming Messiah. And some would believe. Not all of them. Sometimes he was more successful than others. But it says in verse 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. You have to remember, they're not coming into town and say, we've started this new religion. We call it Christianity. They're coming as Jews to Jews saying, God has done what he promised to do. He has sent the Messiah and his name is Jesus. And so as they do that, some are persuaded. Then it says, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks. Remember, we're not in Israel. We're, we are in Gentile land in Thessalonica. This is not Israel. There are Jews there because the Jews have been scattered throughout that region. But it's, it's mostly Greeks. And so these God-fearing Greeks are, are likely Greeks that were following the Old Testament teaching that were, had, had basically converted to Judaism, as well as a number of the leading women. How did these people come to know Jesus as the Messiah? Paul preached. He preached the gospel. He preached, he, 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 he preached that Jesus was the fulfillment of these, these, these prophecies of a coming Messiah that are in, now included in what we call the Old Testament. For them, it just was the scriptures. They didn't call it the Old Testament. He preached and the church grew. I want to make the case that the church grows in the same way today through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church, the true church, the church meaning that, that group of people who have been redeemed by Jesus, who are now following him, who have become disciples of Christ, that being the true church, that church grows through the proclamation of the gospel. It does not grow through clever outreaches or impressive programs. Those are, those are simply tools, if, if utilized, those are simply tools to attract people to hear the proclamation of the gospel to hear the message of Jesus Christ. And, and by proclamation, I don't just mean preaching on Sunday mornings. I mean as all of us share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those around us, as we, as we declare with our mouths that Jesus Christ is the risen Savior. That's how the church grows. That's how people come to faith, through the message of the gospel. And so God is sending people like Paul and Silas all throughout the Roman Empire. And you know what's interesting is he often does that through what would be very inconvenient circumstances for them. What happens to Paul at the, at the end of, uh, uh, well, let's look at verses 9 and 10. This might not be on the screen because I'm kind of jumping around here. That's okay. It doesn't need to be on the screen. Um, and, and back in Acts 17. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So the next city to hear the gospel is the city of Berea. Why did they go to Berea? 
Because people were trying to kill them in the last place they were at. It wasn't, they didn't have to sit around and say, God, where do you want us to go? We're just, we're just going to sit here and, until we hear uh, you speak to us where you want us to go. They just like were launched there. They were forced to go there. And they went there and more people heard the gospel. And more people believed. And the church grew through the proclamation of the gospel. This is how God grows his church. Now, that's not to say Paul wasn't involved in the strategic planning of some of this. There there's, can be no doubt that there were places that Paul thought it best to go and preach the gospel. Because if, if you want to, let's say Pennsylvania, let's say nobody in Pennsylvania has ever heard the gospel. Where are you going to start? Probably not in Lower Borough. <laughs> But you're going to start in, in sort of the main, the, the, the main um, centers of the culture. You're going to think the big cities like Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Harrisburg, because it's our capital city. And people come to Harrisburg from all over the state. And then they go back to other places in the state. Those are strategic ways to spread the gospel. But then after the gospel has gone to those strategic places, it starts to go to the less strategic, the less significant places because God cares about people not just in the big cities, but he cares about people in the rural areas and he cares about people living on islands. And so the gospel is meant to permeate the entire globe. And I should say there's still plenty of work left to do in order for that to happen. By God's grace, the gospel has come to us where we are at but there are many people alive today who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to grow his church through the proclamation of the gospel. So that's how the church grows. What else do we learn from this? The second point on the handout is this. Opposition grew in response to the proclamation of the gospel. Opposition grew in response to the proclamation of the gospel. We're going to look at, we're still in Acts 17. We're going to look at verses 5 through 9 this time. I'm sorry, we'll probably, no, we'll, yeah, we'll stop at 9. That's good enough. But the Jews became jealous and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, that's where, that's where Paul and Silas were staying. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. So, remember, Thessalonica is a province of the Roman Empire. And if you remember from our series in John's Gospel, in the Roman Empire, the one thing you weren't allowed to do was to have another king. Everything was going to go just fine for you as long as you acknowledged Caesar as king. As long as you acknowledged his authority over all the land of the Roman Empire. So, so anytime, anytime someone 
begins to threaten that idea that, uh, by, by presenting another king, by saying someone else has come to be our ruler, to be over us, that is going to invoke a strong response from the Roman Empire. And so these guys know exactly how to get Paul and Silas in trouble. They just simply go to the Romans and, and say, hey, these guys are here preaching a different king or speaking about a different king. They've come here to, to, to change these people's minds about Caesar, and they want us to follow a new king. And that gets everybody upset. That's not good for anybody. That's going to cause major problems. Thessalonica is a town or a city of like 100,000 people at the time. And it was somewhat of a, a privileged province in the Roman Empire. There was, they had a very strong and very good relationship that Macedonia did. I'm sorry. Uh, Thessalonica was a city of 100,000 people. But Macedonia, the state, the province, had a very good and strong relationship with Rome. And they wanted to keep it that way. So they didn't tolerate this kind of stuff. But it wasn't out of it wasn't out of political motivations that they attacked these men preaching the gospel. Verse 5 tells us very clearly, the Jews became jealous. They became jealous. They did not want this Jesus to be preached. And so opposition grows in response to the proclamation of the gospel. Let me... Let, well, first, let me read this. Let me look at John 16 together. We recently preached through John, and so I just want to remind you of some of the things that Jesus said in the book of John. Do you remember what Jesus said the night before he goes to the cross in John 16? He says to his disciples, I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a sacrifice to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. But I have told you these things so that when their time comes, you will remember I told them to you. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. So here's Paul and Silas literally experiencing what Jesus said would one day happen. They're being banned from the synagogue. They're being chased out of the city. They're being hated by people who claim to know God. But Jesus says very clearly they do not. They do not know God. Opposition grew in response to the proclamation of the gospel. I have seen it time and time again when somebody here, here within our church, in our own context, when somebody makes, takes a strong stance and responds to the gospel and, 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 and says, I'm going to follow Jesus in some way. Almost without fail, I, I can just sit and watch and see it coming. Here comes the opposition. And it's not always people with their mouths saying, why do you want to follow Jesus? It's not always that. Sometimes it's just things just start to fall apart a little bit. And I want to say to you, I want to encourage you as your, as your pastor and as somebody who time and time again watches that happen in the lives of other people, as somebody who time and time again has had that happen in my own life, I want to let you know that's normal. And it's okay. 
God is not going to let your life fall apart so much so that he cannot use those pieces to build something better when you come through that season. This is normal. Opposition always follows a response to the gospel. It may not be that somebody drags you out of your home and wants to throw you in jail like it was here in Acts chapter 17. It may not be that you have to flee the city that you live in. For some people it will. That happens today all over the world. There are places on this earth where if you, if you respond publicly to the gospel, your family automatically disowns you. Your employer will fire you. Your friends will be forced to stop being your friends. You will be cut off from the society around you. Happens every day. For you and I, it's not quite that extreme. But we do face opposition. That's because the gospel is doing its work. And there's, there's, something, there's something innate in this fallen world that reacts negatively, negatively to the growth of the gospel. It's normal. Jesus told us it would happen. He told us these things in advance. Opposition grows in response to the proclamation of the gospel. Does that mean it's over? Does that mean it didn't work? You tell me. Christians in 2022 in Lower Borough, was the gospel defeated because of opposition? Did the proclamation of the gospel end in the first century because the Jews grew jealous or because the Romans didn't want anybody preaching another king? Of course not. Here we are. The fruit of the ministry of the men and women of the first century who faced that opposition, who were willing to say, no, this is fine. It's just fine. This is the way life is. Paul, Paul had the hardest time finding a place he could stay for more than a couple of weeks because he was preaching the gospel. And opposition grew and grew and grew. But by God's grace, so did the church. The church grew in spite of the opposition to the gospel. And you, if you will hang in there, and if you will stay faithful... And if you will be willing to say, even though opposition grows in my life, even though these things are falling apart, and even though these people don't agree with what I'm doing, if you will stay faithful, the gospel will grow in your life as well. So I've already spoiled it a little bit. But the last thing on the handout is the question. How would these new believers respond to facing such fierce opposition. I'm back to first century Thessalonica. How are, so, so Paul is there at least for three Sabbaths. There's reasons to believe he actually stayed longer, but that he only preached in the synagogues for the three Sabbaths. But he's there at least for those three Sabbaths. He's preaching the gospel. A large number of people come to believe in the gospel. Jews and God-fearing Greeks, men and women, people are believing in the gospel, right? And then he has to flee. 
They actually sent him out in the middle of the night. How will these new believers respond to facing such fierce opposition? The answer to that is found in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are actually two letters written by Paul back to the church at Thessalonica. So after he leaves and he goes and he preaches the gospel in other cities, he's constantly thinking about those whom he's preached the gospel to, wondering how they're doing, praying for them, wanting to shepherd them, wanting to encourage them. And so the way he would do that is he would write letters. And a large portion of the New Testament is Paul's letters because he's gone from city to city and he needs to communicate back to the churches that God has established in those cities. And so what we're going to do over the next six months is we're going to look at Paul's correspondence with the church in Thessalonica. And through that correspondence, we're going to get some insight into how they would respond. We're going to hear what, what, what the church in, in Thessalonica was up to uh, through these letters that Paul sent to them. And I can't wait to do it with you. I'm so excited about these letters because there's so much in here that is relevant to us as the church today in 2022 in Lower Rural Pennsylvania. There's so many similarities between what they were experiencing and what we oftentimes experience. And that's because it's the word of God. It's living and active. And this is how it works. But let me tell you, let me just finish the spoiler alert. How would the new believers respond to facing such fierce opposition? I think you know the answer. Many of them would remain faithful to the gospel. Why? Why is that? What would cause people living in a, for, for the time, a comfortable city, a good place to live? Why would they sacrifice their comfort and their convenience and become enemies of the state? Why would they put their lives at risk for something like this gospel? And I was thinking about that, and I was trying to think of what it would be like to be in that city at that time. And I thought, you know, everyone in Thessalonica had something worth living for. It was a good place to be. There was relative peace. There was, as far as what the, the, the amenities of the day, they had access to these things. They were in an important part of the Roman Empire. Everyone there, they didn't have trouble finding something worth living for. But the believers in Christ, those who had heard the gospel and responded, they found something worth dying for. And there's a big difference. If you want something worth living for, I can give you all kinds of ideas. This, our world will give you all kinds of ideas. Our, our, our culture is full of things that you get to choose so what, what is going to make your life worth living? It's not unusual to find something that, that makes you want to get up and get out of bed and go and do whatever it is that you do. But the gospel is worth dying for. And that is a huge difference. What is worth giving up all of that for? Now that is something of incredible value. Everyone in Thessalonica had something worth living for, but those who had heard the gospel had something worth dying for. As we consider 
the books of First and Second Thessalonians, I hope that you will see the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ as something worth dying for. I hope that you will see that what we're talking about is not just how to have a happy life and not just how to, to succeed in the things that are in your heart to do, but what we're talking about is, is something that if, if, if you had to choose today between everything you've ever dreamed of and everything you, you wish to have and the gospel, I hope you would choose the gospel because it's that valuable. It's that important. This truly is something worth dying for. Would you pray?